you, Daniel. Thanks. Well, my name is Ron Cool, and I am one of the pastors here, and it's a joy for me also to welcome each and every one of you here. And we've been praying that you experience God's presence uh, during our time of worship together. And then just as a, as a community, we'd love to have you just get to know you a little bit and say hello. So uh, stick around after the service a little bit. Five weeks ago, we started a series where we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah. And the question we've been asking is, what is God like? Uh, what does Isaiah say God is like? What does the Bible say God is like? How should we think about him? And what difference does that make in our lives? And so we've been going through Isaiah, and we've looked at a number of different things. We, we saw first that he is the Holy One, right? Isaiah had that vision of God in Isaiah 6, that, that God is holy, 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 that he dwells in unapproachable light, that, that he is so pure and so perfect. And then we saw that he's also a broken-hearted farmer, that he created this world, but we rebelled against him, and it broke his heart. He created out of love, but, but, but we rebelled. And, and we saw that he was also the judge, that he will one day say an end to all that is wrong in this world and all that is wrong in us. We talked about him being the king, that he is big enough to take care of us, that he is the lion of Judah, that he is the one who is big enough. And then last week we talked about that our God is a shepherd who comes to us to comfort us, who comes to us in our brokenness. We're going to add another one this morning to that, again, in the Advent themes that we're, uh, that we're working through at this time of the year. Um, and, and, and as we do that, I want to kind of just remind you a little bit, if you were here, of something we talked about last week. But I think it's really helpful for us to, to remember and to understand that, that at the end of chapter Isaiah, there's, there's movement in the book of Isaiah. And at the end of Isaiah 39, there's, there's a major break, all right? There's just a, a really major break in, in, in the sense of, of what Isaiah says. It's certainly all the same book in my view, but, it, but, it's, but there's a, a big change. And, and so we talked about this and, and uh, we said, you know, Isaiah started ministering and preaching maybe about 740 BC, somewhere in there, maybe a little before that. But by 735 BC, Judah, that's where um, Isaiah was from and that's to whom he spoke. He lived uh, in Jerusalem probably. And, and there was Aram and Israel to the north. They were going to be attacking Assyria to the north of them. And during the time of, of Isaiah's ministry, during his 40-plus years of, of preaching, of prophesying, of bringing God's word into this situation, Assyria continued to dominate. Assyria continued to come down. And in 701, we talked about this last week, two really important things happened, okay? And this is what brings the change in, in the book of Isaiah. First of all, Hezekiah just, just trusts God completely. Hezekiah was a great king. Hezekiah was somebody who trusted God completely in, in the midst of a huge crisis. But then in the same year, at the same time, Hezekiah failed miserably. Hezekiah just failed miserably to trust in God. And we said, you know what, that's what we're like. We're, we're mixed bags. And, and at that point, Isaiah, I think, realized Hezekiah is not the one. Hezekiah is not the one who's going to save us, and he had to announce God's word that Judah is going to go into exile, that Judah is going to be brought into Babylon. And this doesn't happen for 115 years, but in 586 BC, Babylon is replaced Assyria, and, and in 586, what happens is they expand and they come further to the south there. They swallow up uh, the nation of Judah, the people of Israel there, and, and Judah just becomes this little dot, this little remnant back in Babylon. And, and, and what we recognize here, and I, the reason I think this is important, is what, what happens is now for the rest of the book, that happens in Isaiah 39, that, that Isaiah announces that. Really, in reality, it doesn't happen for 115 years. But for the rest of the book, what God is going to do is speak to those people who are in exile. 
Isaiah begins to speak to those people who are in the pit, who are in the broken place, who are, who are just a little remnant, who are broken and busted, who are aware of their sins, aware of their, their failures, aware of all that's wrong in this world. And, and so that's why we get a different tone. Isaiah, you know, begins to, to write for these people in captivity. He begins to bring God's word to them. I suggested last week that I, I think it's helpful to imagine, and, and there's some suggestion that it's accurate, that Isaiah actually moved out of Jerusalem and he moved into the hill country of Judah. So I picture Isaiah there with his, with his wife, with his kids, and with some others uh, who were part of his group, a remnant sort of here. And Isaiah, in some ways, I think, maybe thought he was done hearing from God. But, but he's there, and God continues to speak to him. And, and God speaks these words that are going to become just powerful for the people of God 115 years later. And, and what we see is amazing pictures of who God is and of what God is going to do. And one of those we looked at last week, that God is the shepherd who comes. That, that while the people of Israel are far away from Judah, that the people of Judah are, are, are just that little yellow dot, that remnant in the belly of the whale, kind of. God is going to come to them and bring them comfort. Comfort, Isaiah 41, right? Comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that I'm coming and I am a shepherd. So as Isaiah has this vision, he's there and, and, and he sees and, and he continues to grow in his understanding of, of what God is going to do and of, and of who God is. Again, none of the other stuff goes away. God is still holy. God is still king. God is still judge. God is still the brokenhearted farmer. All of those things are in place. But as Isaiah gets this vision, one of the things that happens, one of the things that happens is that Isaiah seems to start to, to recognize that, 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 that more and more there's going to be one person who is central to God's plan. I know we got to understand something. I don't think that what happens here is that Isaiah's, you know, outside of Jerusalem there, that Isaiah's hanging out in the hill country, and God says, you don't know what a TV is yet, but this is what a TV is, and here's a VCR, um, okay, a DVD. And, and God says, now watch this. This is Jesus being born, and this is his life. No, that's not the kind of vision he gets, but, but he starts to see that God's, that God's work is going to be centered in one unique individual, in one person. I think Isaiah kind of was thinking, you know, that was going to be Hezekiah. Hezekiah was going to be the one who, who brought in God's kingdom. Hezekiah is going to be the one who, who brought in the people, but, but it wasn't. And so now he sees one. And one of the terms that he uses, one of the titles that he gives to this, this Messiah who is coming, the anointed one who is coming, is he calls him the servant of the Lord. And in Isaiah 40 to really 55, it's through the end, but 55, Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord. And he's talking about somebody who's going to do something that hasn't ever been done before in terms of obedience and bringing life and making things right. Now, we need to recognize something here because I don't want you to go home and read through the book of Isaiah and say, well, anytime it says the servant of the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. No, the fact is there are other servants of the Lord in Isaiah, okay? Isaiah uses this term for anybody whom God uses. Even, even one of the pagan kings is a servant of the Lord because he's doing what God wants him to do. So there are, there are other servants of the Lord. Let me just, Isaiah himself, Isaiah 20 verse 3. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, my servant Isaiah. So Isaiah is a servant of the Lord. Isaiah 22, 20. Uh, this is uh, Eliakim is the kind of second in command to Hezekiah. He is called the servant of the Lord. In that day I will summon, God is speaking, my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Okay, so Eliakim is a servant of the Lord. David is called a servant of the Lord. I will defend this city and save it. For my sake and the sake of David, my servant. 
and then even Israel. But you, Israel, as a nation, you are my servant. And, and so it's not that this is only used of the Messiah. This is not a time. But there are, there are just a few of these things that, that become really clear as you look at them, and especially in the light of Jesus Christ. They become clear that, that Isaiah is recognizing, and, and I think of, it, think of it like a picture coming into focus, that Isaiah is recognizing that this one is going to be different. This servant of the Lord is going to be, be unique, and, and that one is coming. And, and, and Bible teachers have recognized that there are kind of four songs in Isaiah, uh, that, that next section, four songs that are called servant songs. The first one is the one we're going to look at today. It's Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. If you want to just write them down, you can. Otherwise, you can Google them. But Isaiah 49, 1 to 6, Isaiah 54 through 9, all of these talk about the servant of the Lord. And it's not Israel, and it's not Isaiah. This is that one who's coming. This is that one who is unique. Um, Isaiah 50, and then actually it starts in Isaiah 52, but Isaiah 53, 1 through 11. And then possibly Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. It, it doesn't use the term servant, but it, 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 it sounds exactly like the others. So what we're going to do is, this week I'm going to look at Isaiah 42. And say, what do we learn about the servant of the Lord? What do we learn about this coming Messiah from Isaiah 42? And then next week, Daniel's going to pick us up and take us through Isaiah 52 and 53. And, and, and say, what do we learn there about the servant of the Lord? So I'd like to just begin by reading these four verses, all right? Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff, snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Islands there just refers to the ends of the earth, okay? When you wanted to say the, the far, you know, I, I mean, yeah, the ends of the earth. Those are the, uh, so all of creation, everybody's going to put their hope in this servant. All right, so what do we learn about this? I want to suggest that, that as we go through these verses, there are three, three really ways that the, the servant of the Lord, here we go, there we go. I double pushed. Uh, three ways that the servant of the Lord is unique, okay? Three ways that this servant is different than any others, and, and each one says something to us, okay? Each one has an impact on us. The first one is this. This servant that Isaiah talks about, he talks about other servants of the Lord, but this one is unique in his relationship with God, and from our perspective, we say it's his relationship with God the Father, okay? Again, look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is, and, and it's really look at, in chapter 41, there are two times when Isaiah says, look at these idols. Look at these idolaters. And now he says, but now look at my servant. Here he is. Look at him. Notice him. This is the hope of the world. Here is my servant. And, and then these words, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Again, Isaiah has known there have been other servants of the Lord. There was Hezekiah. There was, uh, you know, uh, uh, David. He himself. But all these other servants of the Lord failed. This one is different. This one's going to be different because he is so close to God. He is, I mean, we see that. This is the one whom I uphold. This is my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And, and so what we see here is, is just this amazing, deep relationship of intimacy and closeness and, and love. 
And, and this servant is, is going to be able to do what God calls him to do because of that close relationship with the Father, because of that close relationship. And, and in fact, we suggest that Isaiah didn't realize how close it was. You know, again, I don't think Isaiah knew. And, and you know, he said, yes, he will be Emmanuel. But I don't think Isaiah really understood that this servant he was singing, seeing was Jesus and that this servant he was seeing was God's own son. I, I think that we have to understand that that was such a radical thought that God would be born, that God would come to earth, that I don't think Isaiah could have wrapped his mind around it. But the, the, the New Testament makes it clear. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 says this, and a, voice said from hev- and a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Right? Whom I love, with him I... That's, he's quoting from Isaiah 42, verse 1 there. Matthew is saying, this is the one, this is the servant, this is the one that Isaiah saw, this is the one who God loves, this is God's chosen one, and, and it's his own son. The Gospel of Luke, uh, he, he points us to this as well. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus reads in public the scripture, and this is actually Isaiah 61, that other possible servant song. But again, the same thing as 42 verse 1. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so what we see, all right, and, 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 and we'll get to some cash out here in just a minute, but, but you know, I mean, Isaiah is saying, look at my servant. This is the one I love. And, and, and there's this intimacy, and there's this closeness, and there's this delight. And, and we see that he's talking about Jesus. We see that he's talking about God's own son. And, and so there's this unique relationship that when we see Jesus, we see God. And this servant, and, and just tuck this away in the back of your minds, because we'll come back to it. But this servant is God, okay? Isaiah sees the servant, but he doesn't realize he is seeing God. I don't think he does. I don't think he understands that. But he is seeing God. And, and, and so this one has a unique relationship with God the Father. He is God the Son. And, and here's where I want to just kind of say, now let's just slow down and bring it up to us. Because Jesus is a unique servant, but he does something unbelievable, and he invites us into a unique relationship with the Father. Because of Jesus, we have a unique relationship with the Father. And what I want to encourage you to think about doing here, and and I think this is exactly right, because we are now in Christ, we are children of God, in Christ we have been adopted, that I think we can go back. I can go back to Isaiah 42 and put our own names in there, all right? Look at this. Just do this with your name. And just stop and let this kind of, here is, look at my servant, Ron, or Susie, or Fran, or whoever. Put your name in there. Look at my servant, Ron, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Again, Jesus was unique in that. But I can now say, because I am the son of God, because Jesus has 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 adopted me. God is my father. And, and, and so God looks at me. And for some of us, that's, that's just what we need to hear this morning, that God looks at you and says, you are my chosen one. I delight in you. In spite of your brokenness, in spite of your failure, God looks at you this morning. The God who is so big and powerful and holy says, I delight in you. You are my chosen one. And I will put my spirit on him. I will put my spirit on her. And, and, and just to think 
That, I mean, we have a relationship with God that's closer because of the Spirit. We have a relationship that's closer than Isaiah did. We have, a, we have an adoption that, that Isaiah didn't understand. We have an, a, a, and, and God looks at you. Like I said, just stop. And, and if, if we could get that fact through our head this morning, that would be so amazing that God looks at you and says, I delight in you. You are my child, and I delight in you. And I just want you to think about that. In the next 14, uh, 10 days or whatever it is, 11 days, um, we're going to get together. A number of us will get together with family. A number of us will get together with friends. And I can guarantee you something, okay? Let me guarantee you something. One of your brothers or sisters is going to say something really stupid to you. Or somebody at the party is going to say something stupid. And they're going to make you feel like a jerk. They're going to make you feel like a heel. And I want you to come back to Isaiah and say, I am God's holy one, chosen one, in whom he delights. That when he sees me, he sees his son Jesus, and God delights in me. And I don't have to take it. I mean, I don't have to let it penetrate. I don't have to respond with anger. I don't have to respond with any of that. I can just recognize that my identity is not determined by whether Aunt Matilda thinks I've wasted the last year of my life. My identity is not determined by whether Uncle Joe thinks that I'm doing a good job with my kids or not. My identity is that God delights in me. My identity is that in Christ I am restored as a child of God, and God delights in me. And, and the servant has a unique relationship with God that he brings and that he shares with all of us, and God puts his spirit in us, and we are washed of our sins because of the servant, and God makes all things new, and he makes us new, and he delights in us. And, and, and so just, I mean, that's part of the reason why we celebrate Christmas, why we celebrate Advent. Because Jesus brings us into that unique relationship and we can finally start to get it right. So he, he's unique in his relationship with God the Father and that brings us into a unique relationship with God the Father. The second one, this is the one I really want us to, to think about because it shows us really who God is. Again, the servant is God, remember that. But the servant is unique in the way he does his work, okay? The second thing that makes him unique is in the way he does his work. Now, his work is not unique. His work is, is the work of a king. Any Hebrew person would have recognized that. Isaiah would have known that. I mean, again, the last part of verse 1 going, uh, well, just the last part of verse 1, it says this, I will put my spirit on the servant. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring what? Justice to the nations. Now, sometimes when we say justice, well, that just means the courts are going to be fair, right? That means, no, th- this word justice is, is mishpat in the Hebrew. It's similar to shalom in, in a lot of ways. In this one, I think it's exactly like shalom. It's putting everything straight, right? It's, it's making all right relationships. This servant, is, and, and that's the job of the king. Now, if you were, a year ago, we looked at the beginning of Genesis, and we said that when sin entered the world, it broke our relationship with God and with each other and with the world and with ourselves. And what this servant is going to do is bring justice. That means he's going to restore all of those relationships. He's going to make everything right. And that's the job of the king. That's what the king is supposed to do. The king is supposed to make things right. The king is in charge and is supposed to make things right. So he's given the job of the king. Two more times in these four verses, we read about it. In faithfulness, he will bring forth mishpat, justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes mishpat, justice, on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And so his work is the work of a king. That's not the interesting part. What's interesting is his style. Because his style 
is the style of a servant. His method, his way. And this is, I think, one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around is that that our God works in the form of a servant, that our God works by being a servant. Again, 42 verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Those are terms of power. Those are terms of control. Those are terms that the king uses to get everybody in line. Most of us say, you know what, if I'm going to make things right, if I'm going to make things straight, what i got to do is, is, is crush all those things that are wrong and just get rid of them and throw. But this, this servant, this, this servant who is God himself is going to come, and, and he will not shout. And, and I don't want to make too much. These words each have a little different sense. Don't make too much of it, but I want to at least mention it. He will not shout. That, that word primarily means threaten. The servant's not going to come and threaten. That's often the way a king, right? Do this or else. That's, that's, as parents, I know we're not supposed to, but sometimes Tammy did. Uh, no, I mean, right, I mean, I, if you don't do it right, then this is going to happen, and the threat, and, the, and, and I'm going to do this, and I'm, he will not do that. He, he will not shout. He will not threaten. He will not cry out. That's dominate. And it really referred to a kind of dominating the conversation. And again, a king says, it's my agenda, and I will control what happens. I will control that. I will dominate that. It's, this servant's not going to do that. He's not going to come from the top. He's not going to come from a place of power or raise his voice in the streets. That is to draw attention to himself. I mean, this is just fascinating, friends, to think about this. And, and I don't know if we can ever really grasp it. But we have the job of the king, but, but not the method of the king. We have the job of, of making things right, but the method of a servant. He goes on in, in verse 3, and he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, i got to tell you something. We've we got to grab kind of a sense of what these, what these passages mean. Because if you are a king, you've got no time for bruised reeds, Okay? bruised reeds in Israel, in Judah, in Babylon, reeds are way more than, way less than a dime a dozen. They're worthless. Okay, there's, there's nothing. They, they grow like crazy. They grow quickly. You can, and if you get a bruised one, any intelligent person knows you get rid of it. You throw it away because there are thousands of other ones you can grab onto. And, and yet, a bruised reed, he will not break. That word bruised is one that means that it's, it's, it's really, well, It's crushed. It's done for. It's not just a little, this, 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 re- and, and it would be crazy. Think about it. I mean, in some ways, this is similar to saying a blade of grass, a broken blade of grass, he will not try to bring healing to. Can you imagine somebody who would be crazy enough, crazy enough to say, oh my goodness, there's a, a, a bent blade of glass, and blade of, blade of grass in my front yard. I'm going to dig it up and I'm going to, tra- so that I can transplant it, so that I can, that's, that's what this is saying. It's crazy, but that's who God is. You you need to understand that. God is crazy because he is crazy in love. Because he is crazy as a broken-hearted farmer who loves his creation that much. A bruised reed, he will not break. He's going to take that, and he's going to nurture it. No king in his right mind would do that, but our king does. He is such a servant that he will take that bruised reed, and he will bring healing, and he will make it right. He comes not to bring himself glory, but to serve others. The, the smoldering wick, again, a, a wonderful image. For us, probably the best image in, in, you know, is a tiki torch. 
I hope that you've um, wasted money on those. Um, but you know how a tiki torch works? If you don't, there's a kind of a container. You put the oil in there, and then you put the wick in there, and the oil goes up the wick, and when you light it, what burns is not the wick, right? What burns is the oil. That's the way it was in Jesus' day. What, what was burning was not the wick. It was the oil that was burning. Now, if the oil ran out, the wick starts to burn. And if you have tiki torches, if you've ever, you know, at that point, you just snuff it out, cut it off, and throw it away. It is not worth, I, I can tell, Menards, you can buy tiki wicks so cheap. These were rags. And, and so only a fool, only a fool would take the time to nurture a wick, to refill it with oil, to renew it, to strengthen it. Only a fool like our God, only a fool like Jesus who loves you so much that when you fail, when you smolder, when you are stinky and worthless, he comes and pours his life into you and into me. His style is the style of a servant. And that is absolutely amazing. And here's the next thing we need to know. And this is where I told you to tuck it away, that the servant is God. What that means, and I don't think any of us can ever grasp this truth. I will say it and you'll say, oh yeah, I know that. But what this means is that our God is a servant. I I think we are so convinced of power in our lives. I think we are so much in the world of power. We are so much in the world of domination. We are so much in the world of control. We are so much in the world of those who have the power use it for themselves. We are so much in the world of you got to take care of yourself. For us to say our God is a servant is just absolutely mind-blowing. The fact is, that's why one of the, one of the reasons why the, the Jewish community struggled with this passage because they said, how can this be? This, this doesn't fit because God is not a servant. God is the king. God is the No, he is the king, but he is a servant, and that is absolutely radical. That at the core of who God is, at the core of who God is, is not somebody who says, it's about me. But at the core of who God is, the core of who God is is somebody who says, it's about you. We see this in the Trinity. If you you look in the New Testament, I mean, it's so cool. Because you know what the Father is all about? You know what the Father says all the time? Look at the sun. Isn't that awesome? And look at the spirit. The spirit is so cool. And you know what the spirit says? Look at the sun and look at the father. I want to bless them. I want, to, I want them to flourish. And, 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 and the spirit is pointing to Jesus and the father. And they're all just pointing because they're all servants. Their hearts are all looking to, to lift somebody else up. And that is so radical. I don't think I get that. I think I, because you know what? When we as Christians get power, We tend to use it like power. We tend to use it to control and to dominate and to threaten. Whether we're parents or politicians or whatever, we have such a hard time because I don't think we ever really can grasp in its completeness that God is a servant. Again, we see this in in Jesus. One of my favorite illustrations of this, and I know some of you have heard it before, but Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul is talking about Jesus, and he says this, in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Think the way Jesus thought, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Two kind of key thoughts there. One is Jesus is God, and the other is he made himself a servant, okay? Let me just bring those out and put them this way. Now, 
in the Greek, it's a question of how are these two connected? What's the relationship? There's a relationship, but there's not a word to tell us. And, and for most of my life, Greg Hawthorne wrote a commentary that, that illustrated this, but, but for most of my life, the word that I thought went before he was the word although, right? Although he was God, because that's the way I am. <laughs> although I, if I were God, I, I wouldn't become a servant. If I have the power, I would, it was although. And, and we use although there when things are different, when they don't fit together, right? When they don't, if I were to say, you know what, I didn't buy Tammy a Christmas present, but she treated me nice. I, I used but, right? Although Ron didn't buy her a Christmas present, she still treated, we wouldn't think because. We wouldn't think, oh, because I didn't get her a present, she treated me nice. No, that would be although. But there is every bit of reason in the Greek, and I think more than enough reason in the scriptures to say that really it ought to be because. It is exactly because he was God that he made himself a servant, because that's who God is. At his core, that's who God is. God is a servant. God's desire is not to, to just say it's all about me. God's desire is to bless and to flourish others and to serve and, and to give and, 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 and just unbelievable. And, and, and that makes such a difference to me if I start to understand that. It makes a difference to me to understand. And, and if you say, well, that's not really, is God really a servant? He is such a servant that, he, that Jesus died. God himself died for you. If that's not a servant, I don't know what he is. I mean, the creator of the entire universe washed feet and then died on a cross. It, it's shocking. We get glimpses of it and, and senses that there's something good about it. Tim Keller shares a, a Jonathan Edwards story. Edwards says, imagine, um, well, he says this, have you ever seen, have you ever seen a great person, now, by, that means he mean, by that he means powerful or wealthy, have you ever seen a great person stop and ask his driver for directions? I assume it was a carriage at Jonathan Edwards' time. Um, but have but you ever seen a great person do that? Have you ever seen somebody powerful? Uh, you know, have you ever seen the, the CEO go talk to the person cutting the grass and say, what do you think about this? Have you ever seen a person of great power make a meal for a neighbor and sit with that person? The question is, what do you think of when you see that? Now, he, I thought he was going to say, well, you never see that. No, we see that sometimes. And what do you think of that person? What do you think of that person? Jonathan Edwards says what we think is, is that the great person is even greater for not acting great, right? When we see somebody who has all that power, who come, becomes a servant, who, who puts himself or herself below others, we say that makes that person even greater, and what we get when we see somebody do that is the dimmest glimpse, Edward says, the dimmest echo of what we have infinitely in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have the highest of the high, but the one who became the lowest of the low. We have infinite, infinite honor and infinite humility. And God is a servant. God is a servant. And, and, and that just... Again, I think it blows our minds if we can get this. Because our world, the real world, you know what it's like. What do we believe? It's all about power. It's always about power. And it always will be about power. Unless God himself is a servant. His work is the work of a servant. His style is the style of a servant. And now about us, our work is the work of a king. We are called to bring justice. And our style is the style of a servant. When we see bruised reeds, we are not to break them. 
When we see smoldering wicks, we are not to snuff them out, but we are to bring them the oil of the gospel, the good news. We are to bring healing. It makes you think about who are the bruised reeds in our culture? Who are the bruised reeds, the smoldering wicks in your classroom, in middle school? Who are the kids who are bruised reeds in high school? Who at work is a bruised reed? Jesus says, go serve them. Go serve them. So he's unique in his relationship with the Father. Second, he's unique in, in the way he does his work. And then third, and we'll just do this really briefly, he's, he's unique in his success. I think Isaiah needed to hear these words, uh, three and four. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. He will not falter. Hezekiah falters. Isaiah falters. Ron falters. Everybody falters. But this one will not till he establishes justice on earth. And, 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 and so we can trust in him. And we ourselves can never give up because he will be there. I don't have a slide for it, but I, I wondered if Paul, when he wrote Philippians 1, verse 6, was thinking about Isaiah 42, 3 and 4. Paul says this, he says, you know what, I, I thank God because I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I know he will not falter. He will not fail. He will, and so never give up. Never give up. God will not quit on me until he's done with me. Okay? And the bruised reeds I can't beat up are myself as well. And the smoldering wicks I can't snuff out are myself as well. So we add another one to our, to our dynamic here. And it is a powerful one. He is the servant. He is the one who gives. And that's what we see in Advent. I want to close with this passage, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is a servant whose son Jesus the servant was born to die so we could live. And next week we'll see just how far the servant is willing to go to give us life. Let's pray together. Father, this world teaches us that power is power and there are pecking orders and it's best to be number one. Jesus comes along and says, I am the servant of the Lord who's going to show you what God's heart is like and you teach us that the way to be great is to give your life. The way to be great is to serve, is to wash feet. Father, help us to see who you are. Help us to see the way you bless others, the way you help others flourish so that we can become servants. Father, thank you for reaching out to us as bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Teach us to love each other and the world the way you do. Teach us to be servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.